Church, I want to tell you that one of the earliest memories I have of my childhood elementary school education is I went to a school in New Jersey that was in a good neighborhood. And our school had what's called a glee club. Okay, we had a music program. Um, my teacher at the time, I was in first grade and second grade with her, but her name was Mrs. Harris. And she was, even for that period of, of time, she was very hip. She was very like trendy. And uh, she didn't just teach us like, you know, these old folk songs. She had us singing music that was on the radio at that time. Does that make sense? So when I was growing up, one of the first songs that I learned in school was the song Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. Like that was one of the first, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but that was one of the first songs that I learned. And I, because I learned it in school, to this day, I remember every word to that song, every single word. And I don't know if, if you're this way, but if you hear a song enough times, if you walk into a store in the mall or grocery shopping and they're playing music, when you, when you hear that song subconsciously, you begin to, in your mind, you begin to sing along, don't you? Some of you might even begin to sing out loud. Well, Moses was getting ready to die. He knew that his time was very short with his people. And he loved them. He loved them with all his heart. And he didn't want them to forget everything that God had done for them. And Moses understood that if they were to forget what God had done, he knew that they would ultimately leave and, force, and, and give up the blessings that God had in store. So one of the last acts before Moses died was he taught them a song, which in the Bible is called the Song of Moses. Now, it's not my burden to share this entire song with you, but if you'll open your Bible with me to the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, we are going to look at a few verses in this song. Deuteronomy chapter 32 And we're going to start in verse 9. The Bible says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Now, some of you know what an inheritance is. An inheritance is a special allotment designated for you. 
Does that make sense? And so when Moses says that God's people, so the word Jacob here, it's really, well, do you remember the, the person Jacob? What was his name later on when God changed it? What was his name? Israel. And so often in the Bible, when you see the name Jacob, if it's not describing the literal person, it's a reference to God's people, Israel. And what Moses was reminding his people was that to God, Israel was his special allotment. They were his special people. Does that make sense? And when you come to verse 10, the Bible tells us their humble origins. He found him where? In a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the what? As the apple of his eye. Now, for some of you, maybe you don't like apples. But in the original Hebrew, there are some explanations for this phrase. Um, the phrase, the apple of the eye, it actually refers to the little centerpiece of your eye that we call the pupil. And when the Bible says that he kept him as the apple of his eye, one of the things that human beings instinctively do is whenever we sense some form of danger that approaches our eyes, we instinctively close our eyes or put our hands up to protect our eyes. Does that make sense? Um, if you've ever been punched, um, if you've ever fired a gun, it's instinctive. It's almost, unless you're trained, it's almost impossible not to close your eyes when you encounter one of those experiences. And so, this is part of the way that we're made. We instinctively protect our eyes because it's a delicate organ. And this is the imagery that God was using for his people. Not only was he saying, you are my special allotment, but he was also saying, I kept you as delicately and as protective of our eyes as human beings are. That's how I watched over you. And then in verse 11, we come to a very strange passage. And I want you to notice the imagery that the Bible uses here in verse 11. The Bible says, as an eagle stirreth up her nest. Now, when I was a traveling evangelist, I had a meeting in the state of Washington. They rented a little mobile home for me, and across the street, there was a dead tree. But it wasn't the tree that was so captivating. In the branches of this dead tree, there was this giant wooden V from where I was living. All I could see was this silhouette in the sky of this giant V. And my hosts told me 
that that giant wooden structure in that tree was the nest of a bald eagle. Now, I don't know if you have ever seen a bald eagle's nest, but the size of it is absolutely unforgettable. A, a bald eagle's nest can weigh 2,000 pounds. That's a small one. They have recorded bald eagle's nests that weigh up to 6,000 pounds, three tons. That's more than some of the cars that are in the parking lot right now. Now, you may know this, but the eagle is actually a very, very strong bird. I don't know if you've ever been to a zoo where you can see an eagle close up. Because if you see an eagle close up, there is a level of awe and intimidation. These birds, their talons are probably as big as my hand, if not bigger. They can actually, an eagle, a full-grown eagle, can swoop down and it can actually pick up and lift a small sheep and fly off with it and devour it. Now, you have to understand that these creatures are large, powerful birds. And so when they make their nests, they build them in such a way that the bottom part is made of giant pieces of, of timber. They're made of big branches. And they construct them on the bottom very rough. You know, they have these branches in different places. But as you progressively go up in the nest, the sticks become smaller and smaller and smaller. And then at the very top, where the actual, you know, the dwelling place is, they actually line it with very soft materials, grasses, feathers, and other things, so that the actual nest itself is extremely comfortable. Now, another fascinating fact is that when these eagles are born, the nests are usually perched in a location not only is it very remote, but almost without fail, they are very, very high off the ground. And that's important to understand because that height is instrumental. It is absolutely imperative for the next stage of the young eagle's life. I want you to notice with me back in Deuteron Deuteronomy 32 and verse 11, the Bible says, as an eagle stirreth up her nest. You see, when the eagles are first born, they hatch, the mother eagle begins to feed them, and life is easy. Life is good. Because all they have to do, I mean, think about it. Wouldn't this be a good life? You sit, you eat. Your food is brought to you. It's literally dropped in their mouth. And so all they have to do is simply sit there and scream or beg or cry for food, 
and mother eagle drops the food right into their mouth, and they are being nourished day after day. But there comes a point when the eagle begins to develop, the baby eagles begin to develop the first semblance of feathers. They are growing in size. Instinctively, the mother eagle knows that the time has come for a change. And so what does she do? Unlike before, when the mother's goal was to make sure that the eagle's nest was soft, that was comfortable, that it was not going to injure or hurt them in any way, with her powerful talons, she begins to rip and begin to break that soft bedding in the nest that she made. Before, where there was only, you know, grasses and haze and feathers, now the sharp sticks are beginning to poke out. They're beginning to push at those little eagles. And those little eagles are sitting there thinking, what's going on? Why all of a sudden this change? But that's not all. Please notice verse 11 of Deuteronomy 32, because the Bible then goes on to say, as an eagle stirs up her nest, and then it says, and fluttereth over her young. Now, this is the next step in this change of the young eagle's experience, because now not only does mother take her powerful talons and begin to rip and begin to tear and begin to break up this nest that was just so comfortable, now with her powerful wings, she begins to actually hit and beat and begin to make commotion and chaos for the young eagles that are centered in that nest. If she didn't do that, Despite the, un the uncomfortableness, despite the inconvenience of the new, new, you know, the new uh, home, they might have just endured it and sat there. But now because mother is flapping her wings, sometimes gently hitting them, these young eagles cannot stay in the center of the nest anymore. So what do they do? They do something that seems almost unthinkable. They move to the very edge of the nest. Now, you have to remember, they've never flown yet. They can't fly yet. But mother knows that this is also an essential step in their experience. And so as these young eagles move towards the edge, they are now faced with the dilemma there's no place to go. There's nowhere that they can escape the uncomfortableness and the mother is flapping her wings. And so what do they do? They do something that nature has instinctively implanted in their minds. They climb onto the back of the mother bird. So what does she do? Look with me at verse 11. It says, she spreadeth abroad her wings and taketh them. Now, I do not know if eagles have a natural appreciation for heights. 
But you can imagine, from having lived in the comfort of a huge nest, suddenly, one day, they find that their entire home is destroyed. They find themselves on the back of their mother, and now as mother leaps off into the air, they are now flying on her back. If only that's all it was. But the mother knows that if this step isn't taken, ultimately they'll die. She drops them. She lets them go. And those little birds, as they plunge, as they, as they fall in that free fall, their little wings spread and they try to catch air. As they hurtle towards the ground, there's not enough strength, there's not enough uh, skill for them to really fly right away. And so as they hurtle towards the ground at astonishing speed, the mother with her keen eye, did you know that a eagle flying two miles in the air can look down on a river and see a fish two miles down. Let me give you an idea. A human being, if you saw a car a mile, one mile away, you couldn't even tell what color the license plate was. You, you can't. An eagle's eyes are incredibly powerful. And so mother is watching, and as these eagles plunge towards the ground, what does she do? She swoops and she picks them up on her back. Maybe they go back to the nest, but the point is that eventually the cycle is repeated again. Now, you have to understand that this is done over and over until the eagles learn to fly. Now, why would Moses put this verse into a song for the children of Israel? Why would he do that? What would, what would be the point of talking about eagles in relation to how God was dealing with his people? Well, one of the first things to know is that this analogy was designed to help Israel understand why they had to go through what they went through. Do you remember when Joseph brought his brothers to Egypt? Do you remember that? Do you remember that he told them, look, these Egyptians think shepherds are an abomination. I'm going to give you the best land and you can live there for free and you can raise your families and you can raise your, your livestock. And life was good and they grew and they multiplied and they had kids and they had more kids. And then what happened? Joseph died. And after Joseph died, then what happened? They became slaves. And it was bad. I mean, they were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were punished. Life became very difficult. Have you ever been enjoying life? Have you ever had things so good? And then one day, it seems like everything changes. You know, you were going along just fine. Your, your job was going well. 
And then suddenly you get a new boss or you get a new work colleague. And all of a sudden, the dynamics of your life have been permanently changed. Maybe you were feeling fine. And then one day you felt a, an acute pain in your abdomen. And maybe you went to the doctor and they did a scan and maybe they discovered a lump. Maybe they discovered a tumor. Maybe they discovered something abnormal. You see, sometimes in life, God allows the nest to be stirred up. Because God knows that if we just live a complacent life and things are going well, God knows that there is some things that we can never experience and never understand unless he stirs up the nest. You know, all of us in here, at some point in our life, we've had our nest stirred. You've lost a loved one. Maybe you lose a job. Some of us right now are going through uncertainty because maybe we don't know if we'll get healed. We don't know if we're going to get cured. We don't know, right? And sometimes relationships, even in a home, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your spouse, it can begin to deteriorate and you begin to wonder why is things getting worse? But, you know, I want you to know that God has a reason for doing what he does. You see, for some people, God wants them to actually start a new chapter. And what do I mean? Well, for some people, it means that you have to move somewhere else for a new job. And you know, it may seem to you to be a strange thing, but God called Abraham from where he was living comfortably with all of his family. And he said, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere where you've never been because that's the new place that I have for you. I know that there are some of you in here right now God is stirring up the nest because there is another place that he has for you to do ministry for someone else. Does that make sense? I know that for some people, God stirs up the nest because we've become complacent. We are just methodical. We wake up, we have our worship, we pray, we go to work, we do our routine, but there's no real soul hunger for God. And he knows that if he just leaves us alone to do exactly what we've always been doing, if he doesn't stir up the nest, God knows that our complacency would rob us of the genuine blessing that he wants for us. So God allows, God allows the nest to be stirred up because what he's saying to you is, I don't want you to be satisfied in the spiritual condition that you are in right now. I'm not saying that I was ever wealthy, but there was a point in my life, but my wife and I, like, we had cash in the bank. You know, we had our 
vehicles, and we had our RV, and we had all these things. And I can tell you, when you have enough money in the bank, and you know you have nice car to drive, you have all these things. There comes a point in your life when you feel like God is just an accessory. Not something that I have to need, or not something that I have to have in order to survive. But I want to tell you from experience: when your bills every month are more than your actual income, and when you know that your kids need braces and they're in private school, and you have all these expenses going on. There comes a place in our life where we realize that more than maybe I need air, if I don't have God's blessing, I am not going to make it. And that's why God stirs up the mess. There are some people that God stirs up the nest because some of you in here you think you know yourself. But if God didn't stir up the nest, you would not realize things that are hidden in your own heart. Let me tell you, I, when I was single, I thought I am the greatest Christian alive, <laughs> because I just thought, you know, I'm patient, I'm a nice guy. You know, when you get married, and I'm going to say this as a universal principle, God puts you with someone to reveal the weaknesses of your character. If you're married, you know I'm. You know I'm saying the truth. You know that, right, folks? Make no mistake. When you get married, it is a. It is one way that God shakes us up. You know those conflicts you have in marriage. Those conflicts are designed to awaken you to the realization of who you really are. And make no mistake, friends. God allows. So some people think, well, you know, I married the wrong person. No, you married the right person, but God brought that person to develop your own character. So don't forget that because God sometimes has to stir the nest because in our hearts we think we're good, we think we're fine, we think we're okay, and if God didn't stir the nest, we wouldn't see who we really are. I want to tell you right now that there are some of us. God is shaking our nest. He's making things uncomfortable. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's financially right now, or maybe it's your health. But I want to challenge you because many times when we go through trial, we think that God has forgotten us. No, when you feel like you're falling, God's eye sees greater than the eye of the eagle. Amen. When you are, when you feel like God doesn't even care. God has His wings. He's hovering over you. He's watching you to make sure that you're going to be okay. And I want to challenge you because when we get bitter during trial, when we feel like God has forsaken us, that He doesn't care, it's actually the opposite. God really cares, and that's why He allows the nest to be stirred up. There's someone in here today. God is stirring his or her nest, and when he stirs your nest, remember this: remember that to God, you are His special allotment. You are as protected as a person protects his own eye. And when you go through these difficulties, don't forget 
God is allowing this because there are lessons that you cannot learn unless you go through these experiences. And remember, folks, this song, this was to remind this, his people that forever after, whatever experiences they would go through, as the mother eagle loves those precious birds, more so, God loves his people. And so please, whatever experience that you're going through, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he really loves you, and that's why he's allowing you to go through what you're going through right now. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we are your portion. Thank you that we are as loved and viewed as the apple of your eye. But Lord, most importantly today, I know, I know that right now there are people in here whose nest is being stirred. There are some that feel like they are just falling in a free fall and nothing is stopping them. My prayer is that we would recognize that the divine eye sees everything. It not only sees, but it is poised to swoop in at the moment when help is needed the most. So until that comes, help us to trust the process and to trust that you know best. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.